0: the founder and CEO of ProSec Partners, a leading international public relations and financial communications consultancy with offices in New York, London, Los Angeles, and Connecticut. ProSec Partners ranks among the top 10 independent public relations firms in the US and among the top financial communications consultancies. The firm has been listed as an Inc. 5,000 fastest growing company for nine years running. Jen is also a two-time author. Our conversation covers the foibles of professional marketing and asset management, building a brand, measuring a successful branding effort, managing the story of weak performance, and describing the differences in hedge fund and private equity branding. We then turn to some of Jen's fascinating observations learned from her experience including raising entrepreneurial children, working with millennials and Gen Z staffers, and implementing the principles of just ask, behave with humanity, and not thinking in black and white. I want to thank Peter Taboris from StrongPoint Wealth Advisors for sponsoring this episode and our podcast guest dinner series. The series brings together guests of the show for evenings of fascinating conversation and connection. Peter's a gracious host, and I'm happy to have his support and that of Strongpoint for our dinners. Please enjoy my conversation with Jen ProTec. Jen, thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: When I started this podcast, every now and then <laughs> someone would reach out and have a suggestion of a guest. And a disproportionate number of them came from ProSec partners.
1: Oh, interesting. <laughs> and
0: I hadn't heard of ProSec. Even though we knew each other. Yeah. <laughs> so, why don't you start by saying what Prosec is, and then we'll circle back and okay. tell your whole story.
1: Great. So, Prosec is a financial communications firm. So, we work across the financial ecosystem with clients, many of them asset managers, but everyone in the ecosystem from fintech companies and retail banks all the way to institutional investors and hedge funds and everything in between. And the idea behind the business was that we believed 17 years ago that financial institutions would one day wake up and smell the marketing. And that took a while, but they actually have. Take
0: me back to how you got to the point where you were forming this business.
1: It's a very random story. So I was an English literature major knowing in college that no one hires an English literature major. So I needed some internships. And I got lucky to completely happen upon an internship in public relations. And I realized that it was suited for me. But I graduated in a recession and there were no jobs in public relations, no entry level jobs. So I took a job in a profession that was not of my choosing and I kind of waited around. I did some networking and I ended up meeting a gentleman who was at GE Capital running corporate communications and hating it. And he told me that one day he was going to unplug and start a business. This was in Connecticut. He said, all these financial institutions are moving to Greenwich and Darien, whatever. And I think if we set up shop in their backyard, we could do something. I liked the idea. I liked him. I really had no interest in a startup. I really wanted to go work for a big company. But we kept in touch. And he eventually called me and said, you want to come to work? And that was the beginning of this. I was employee number one and then was offered partnership and equity in this little tiny nothing firm way before anyone would offer that to a 20-something. So I ended up owning and running a firm at a very early age.
0: Functionally, did you know anything about what you were doing?
1: Not much more than my internship and what I was learning from my new mentor. And I would say three or four years into it, I knew I can't really run and build a firm, especially in the financial space unless I really know what I'm doing. So I actually went to Columbia Business School to get my MBA in finance because I figured if I have an MBA in finance, people will take me seriously in communications. (laughs) And that actually did work.
0: What did you do after the MBA? Did you go back?
1: So I thought very hard about not sticking with my business, my little crappy PR business. And I actually did the rounds at Goldman and DLJ at the time. and I got job offers in banking. And I actually accepted one, but I woke up the next day after I accepted it and I said, I could be a really crappy banker or really amazing financial communicator. And I'm gonna stick with my business. So I kind of went against the tide. I mean, almost all my classmates went into finance at Columbia at the time. And I went back to my silly little PR business and wanted to give it a go.
0: But it wasn't called ProSec Partners no, back then. No, So what was the evolution the of progression, The progression,
1: it started as Jacobs Associates, which was my partner, Dan Jacobs. Then it became Jacobs and Prosec when I became an equity partner, and then it became Cubit Jacobs and Prosec because we partnered with a firm in London called Cubit, and then we rebranded Prosec when I bought my partner out and decided to start my own London office.
0: What year was that?
1: That was ten years ago.
0: Okay. Yeah. And what did the firm look like at the time?
1: Oh, it was small. We probably had twenty people at the time. And today, one hundred and ninety people, and offices in New York, London, L.A., Boston and I'm sure I'm missing one.
0: (laughs) Okay. So take me through the last 10 years. It's now ProSec Partners. It's your firm, 20 people. What was the core business at the time?
1: The original idea for the business is still the original, like the mission for today. So we thought even way back in the day when we were tiny, that one day financial institutions would wake up and smell the marketing, that most financial institutions, especially on the institutional side, were very much on the back foot in terms of reputation, brand, marketing, et cetera. But that one day that would shift. But that idea was a little before its time. So I would say in the last 10 years, especially in the last five, I call financial firms, especially those in private equity, hedge funds, and asset management The emerging market of marketing. It's literally an emerging market. So we focus on two types of clients, either a large financial global institution like a Goldman, which I'm lucky enough to call a client, or a privately held company on the private equity hedge fund asset management side. And on the private side, that's the emerging market. Those are the sort of financial institutions that are just starting to market in a sophisticated manner for the first time. And that is an emerging market. So we are mining this emerging market while we're also working on the mature market and Luckily, a lot of elite firms in our space never focused on what I would call the brand building side. They always focused on issues and crisis management. So we're one of the only firms that really does the brand building side.
0: Take me through what you saw before the last 10 years, Mm -hmm. because these people, if they're emerging, they weren't doing this. Right. In, In terms of what is marketing and how does it apply to these firms that have never really done it before?
1: I just looked at consumer companies and what they've done their whole lives to acquire customers, to manage their reputation, to launch products, to activate the sales channels. And I said, oh my gosh, they do all this marketing, right? And I never understood why financial institutions didn't apply what clever consumer companies did to build their businesses. And there are a whole bunch of factors as to why. And there are a lot of factors as to what sort of activated that emerging market, right? One is the financial crisis. I think the financial crisis woke companies up to the first time that, wow, reputation matters and influencers matter. The media matters. Like we have to manage all these communities, not just beyond the back foot. So a lot of things catalyzed to that emerging market. But originally, the simple observation was just like, why does this odd group of companies in financial services not operate the way these sophisticated marketers do? And it never really made complete sense to me. So I would say before the last 10 years, it was a slog. We were educating clients as to why they need this. I would say currently, I educate no one. The phone calls come in, and it's usually, oh, my gosh, we need this, and we need it fast.
0: That sounds a little bit like crisis management. (laughs) It can be. (laughs) So what was the this? You mentioned branding, but what do you actually do? So maybe take in your head one of your clients who's, say, a private fund manager or something like that. Sure,
1: sure. So we represent the largest publicly traded hedge fund in the world, which is Man Group very well-known in Europe, not so well-known in the United States, looking to come here, build its institutional investor base, acquire other hedge funds, et cetera. And without a brand that is understood and well-regarded and credible, it's harder to do that. So our job really was to build the understanding of Man Group in the U.S., build their brand so that in a quicker and more efficient manner, do their business, right? So what does that require tactically? That's getting to know reporters in the space and telling your story and starting to show up in the media as an expert or a thought leader on certain topics that are germane to the man group or being speaking at conferences or activating social media channels or sort of looking at all the channels that reach your potential client and activating those in a proactive way to build your brand.
0: How difficult is it to get a consistent message
1: The thing about the difference between advertising and public relations or earned media is that in advertising, you just create the advertisement, you buy the space, and boom, there it goes. And that's pretty consistent because you buy it and place it the way it's done. In our world, we're very much relying on the expertise of our client. We're bringing the spokesperson to the media or to the podcast or to the whatever to deliver that message. So it's a little bit tougher to be consistent because there's human error involved potentially. But it is actually not difficult if a company takes it seriously to form a narrative or message and to make sure everyone is on that message and to deliver that message. That's what we do.
0: And what's the balance of your client base?
1: I would say it's a 50-50 between very large financial institutions like Franklin, Templeton, Goldman Sachs, Oppenheimer funds, and then the private side, private equity funds, everyone from like Cerberus down to smaller startups in the private equity space. So it's really all over the
0: yeah. place. Does it get tricky if you have even just the names you mentioned, you have Franklin Templeton as a client, you have Goldman Sachs as asset management as a client, and they're competing against each other?
1: Here and there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How do you manage that?
1: Well, we have almost 200 employees, so luckily we can separate our teams. So if clients have any discomfort or overlap in products and services – we say, you know what, these five people live and breathe your world, and these five people live and breathe those worlds, and like there's separation between those teams. And I would say depending on how high the discomfort level is, there are other things we can do to really separate those teams, right? So kind of like what you hear, Chinese walls, but you can take those Chinese walls today into a pretty sophisticated zone with technology and locking files and all this sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, I think clients choose us because we are specialists and we know their spaces so deeply. It's very hard to get a firm that doesn't understand your space really deeply in what we do. So almost any firm you'd hire might have one or two other clients that would overlap.
0: How do you manage the culture at the firm when that could be a reality?
1: Yeah, Well, the most important thing I believe in running a professional services organization is talent recruiting. That's all we are. I say we're a talent business. We're not a PR firm. So to me, company culture is probably the most important thing I obsess about every single day. You probably know we published a book called The Army of Entrepreneurs in 2011, and that book really was a compilation of our culture and how we built the business because I was in my 20s when I ended up owning and running a business, which is really weird. So I knew I couldn't do it by myself. I needed an army of entrepreneurs. I could not just be the only one. So I figured out ways to activate my colleagues entrepreneurially to help me build the business, but also to help give them skin in the game and a more entrepreneurial experience. So I think I would say any success we've had is completely related to our company culture and our obsession about talent. And retention and recruiting.
0: You said there are a couple ways that you, this army of entrepreneurs, that you keep them motivated and yeah. and keep them acting that way. What are those tools?
1: Well, one that gets a lot of attention in my book is called commission for life. So we developed something called commission for life. And by the way, we don't need to do this now that we actually have a brand. But back in the day when we were struggling to get clients. It was sort of the decision that you give to receive. So the rule is basically if you bring a relationship to the firm that becomes a client, you get 10% of that client revenue for the life of the client and the life of your employment. So people who have been here long periods of time who've participated in Commission for Life have five or 10 companies where they get a piece of the action over long, long periods of time. And that just creates a different culture where people know if I'm going to do something for the company, I'm going to get something out of it. And the people who are obviously receiving that commission are generally likely to keep watch over those clients and make sure they're happy, right? So there's sort of this natural mechanism to making sure clients are happy. And I would also say when you start gifting a commission for life, people start also understanding what I call the business of the business, right? If they don't get paid one month, they're like, wow, I didn't get my commission. I'm like, let's talk about what collections are. You're going to help me collect from this (laughs) And they understand how the business works like naturally. So it's been highly beneficial. That's just one little thing that we've done.
0: Are there other good ones?
1: I guess we often talk about being a finder, minder, binder, grinder, (laughs) which people like that too, which I think if you're good at any professional services business, you're probably doing all four of those things. So what are they? So finder is finding commercial opportunity for the business. Minder is being a great manager. Binder is being a great relationship person. And grinder is, we're all grinders, getting the work done.
0: When you look at your client base, particularly this emerging (laughs) emerging market who say, is there a tipping point of asset size where managers start to say, hey, we need your help?
1: I think practically speaking, because firms tend to be a certain size when they have budget to take it seriously, there is that practical reality. But we're seeing emerging startups take marketing seriously right out the gate. And they have a huge advantage even up against large firms because the large firms are sort of like retooling and getting there. And the startups are starting with a gorgeous website and a beautiful narrative and like they're starting from scratch. They're coming to the market in a more sophisticated manner than the large firms did when they came to market. So they're actually accelerating their success, I believe, earlier because they – actually have this religion now. But there are practical realities around budgets and such. But we're seeing a lot of startups come out of the gate, out of prime brokers, for instance, taking this very seriously and spending money on it. How
0: do you measure success?
1: I think at the end of the day, measurement should be about business impact. So I talked to you about accelerating success, right? So if you're a new client and we're doing our job right and you go to a meeting, instead of you educating the prospect or the investor or whomever it is the whole time, you're showing up with them knowing exactly who you are, what you stand for, and why they should choose you. That makes that whole sales process so much more efficient. So a lot of our job is to make sure that when a manager goes out, for instance, they show up to the meeting and the investor knows who they are, what they stand for, why they're in the room, and they can just get down to business, right? So there's many, many ways to measure, but that would be a business impact way to measure. Am I making the sales cycle, for instance, more efficient? But there's obviously all kinds of ways to measure reach, for instance. How many people are we reaching with our message? How many people are engaging with that message? So many, many ways to measure. None are perfect, by the way, but I would say business impact is the real measurement.
0: Walk me through, say, pick a client, could be man group, could be somebody else, that you feel like has very successfully worked with you to consistently deliver a message and had progress from it. And what did that look like from when they first came in the door to when you got to a point where you said, hey, this is working?
1: Well, it's really interesting. We have a lot of large, well-known financial institutions, but my favorite small client story, and I think you know this firm very well, There was a woman who walked in the door one day, a sole proprietor, like very small business in the recruiting space, and her business was all about recruiting in the hedge fund capital fundraising area. And she walked in and I figured, you know, this woman, she's like a tiny little business, right? So I met with her and, you know, I said, look, I think you're too small for us. You should probably go and hire a freelancer or something. But, you know, here are five or six things I think you should do. And one of those things was the data that you're sitting on about people in capital fundraising is really interesting to reporters. Like, you know who's going where at all times, you have mapped the entire universe. That is like candy to reporters. You should put out a report every quarter about capital fundraising moves. The media will love it. You will be a spokesperson. She also happened to be a very dynamic female spokesperson who used to be a journalist. So she understood how this worked. So I gave her some free tips and I figured I'd never see her again. Well, she came in six months later and she said, I did everything you told me to do. I packaged up my data. I put it out to the media. I'm talking to the media about this. And she was building her brand incredibly successfully and making her company look a hundred times bigger than it was. And the measure of success was she came in. I'm like, this woman's serious. I don't care if she's a small client. I'm working with her. I fell in love with her. And a few years later, she built her business and she sold it. And she said, I sold it because of the visibility I was able to get on my brand. And I get clients today because they see my data out in the media and they call me when they need to hire a capital fundraiser, right? So very small client. Jensen Partners, but became incredibly successful in building her brand, which brought bottom-line benefit to her. So I would say it's very easy to measure the impact when it's a small company because you're living and breathing with the founder. It's very hard when you're working for a large global financial institution and you can't feel the business impact.
0: When you're pitching for a new client, Mm -hmm. what's the message that you tell them about those three things that ProSec is going to do great for them?
1: Oh, okay. Well, I think... One is brand protection, that it's just as important to protect your brand as to build it and all the things that we would do to proactively put things in place to protect it. And what are those things? For instance, third parties. Who are the third parties who would say great things about you if something went wrong? What does your employee base feel about you? Your employees are usually the leakers. (laughs) But I look at a client or potential client's glass door page. I don't know if you've heard of that. And I can tell you what's going to happen based on the entries in that Glassdoor page. People like to poo-poo it, and everybody hates it, but it can be an indicator. So I think there's a lot of brand protection things we would put in place. Relationships are brand protection. Having the right relationships with the right people so that when things go bad, you actually have a chance at talking your side of the story. And then I would say – and ProSec's going to build your brand, but we're going to think about it not just about the investors, but all your publics, right? Your employer brand, your internal communications, everything. Because I think everyone thinks only about the investor community, and of course that's important. But it's equally important to think about what does that emerging talent think of you? Are they going to come work for you? Are you going to get the best talent? So every single public – doing an audit of where you are and how do we improve the perception of the firm and the brand of the firm.
0: What was the tipping point where you went from outbound trying to encourage people that this was important to them calling you?
1: Yes, I think it was a perfect storm of things. But one certainly is, we've talked a lot about brand building, but there's also brand protection, reputation management. So the financial crisis created this real wake-up call that your reputation matters and that, Especially like in the hedge fund community, you are now on the radar screen. And it's not just on the radar screen with your investors, all publics. Now people get what a hedge fund is and it has a sort of negative connotation. So, what do we do about that? I think waking up to that reputation matters, that started in the financial crisis. I think increased competition is another thing. I think all of a sudden, people looked at firms like BlackRock and said, oh my gosh, BlackRock, they're amazing. Everyone wants to go to BlackRock. Everyone's talking about BlackRock. Well, why? BlackRock was probably one of the pioneers in sophisticated marketing in the asset management space. They didn't become BlackRock overnight. They've been marketing for 35, 40 years. And Larry Fink's been a thought leader for, what, 25 years. So I think people think they turned on the marketing spigot overnight, but they were early, right? If if you look at any of the early adopters in true marketing and thought leadership, a lot of them are the successful firms of today. The Vanguards, I mean, look at what Bogle did for Vanguard. He was a thought leader before people used the word thought leader. So I think that – there was also all of a sudden this recognition that the world's getting more competitive, more difficult, more volatile, and I need a message that is distinctive and resonates. And if I am looked at as one of the same, if there's no competitive differentiator for my business and my brand, I'm going to have to work a lot harder to be successful. And that just started to become, I think, something people started to believe in the space. The
0: examples you use, you tend to have in a Bogle and even a Larry Fink, you have a spokesman, AQR, probably a great example of Cliff Assis, right? Is it one person saying the message over and over, or is there a different way of doing it so that it's about the firm and not just one person's ability to speak? Well,
1: let me tell you, you create as much of a problem as you solve by having a brand grow up around one person. And we are hired, especially in private equity and hedge funds, many times because The brand has grown up around one person, and they create a succession issue, basically. So we do a lot of work with those kinds of firms, what I call building the bench strategy, making sure that there's a bench of talent that is showcased across the firm versus one person. So it is incredibly important if you have one strong founder or one strong spokesperson, which can be an amazing silver bullet to be also having what I call a corporate program. And I feel like the AQRs and the Bridgewaters and the Blackstones have all been relatively successful having strong founders. Yes, there's a Steve Schwartzman brand, and he definitely built the Blackstone brand using that. But I think no one would say that Blackstone would not move on as an institution. So I always say I think they pulled it off from a brand perspective. And you can argue some of the others have they really pulled it off yet, but I think they're on their way. I think the AQRs and the Bridgewaters – Bridgewater is a client – have done a very good job showcasing the institution as well. And that's a journey for all of these institutions. I think they have to be very careful about how they build their brands. Yeah.
0: So the hedge fund world and the private equity world are clearly in two different places in the public eye right now, or even investors' eyes. What do you think happens from your lens of brand and communication with let's just start with hedge funds?
1: Private equity firms have been way earlier to the game of marketing than hedge funds. Hedge funds are still very new to brand building, reputation management, and being on the front foot with all of this. So the private equity world has been there early on. And why is that? They are long-term investors who had to build their portfolio companies' brands to have more value, right? So they've understood this for a very long time. And I think they were earlier to the game, to be honest hedge funds are newer. Do I think they'll be successful at building institutional brands that will survive into the future? Yes. I think there will be a handful that does, and there will be all kinds of other peril in the ones that don't.
0: Can you tell a disaster story?
1: Oh, boy. What kind of disaster? My personal disaster story? Oh, it could be.
0: Well, why don't we start with that? Why don't we start with sort of your biggest mistake oh boy. in the business?
1: I think my biggest mistakes in business have been that I would have done some things earlier. When you bootstrap a business, there's a lot of fear in taking big bets. I look back and I say, I know I could have accelerated our success by taking a few big bets earlier. I would also say, Shoemaker's House, I would have marketed my own firm earlier than we took it seriously. So I would say that we take marketing now incredibly seriously And if you ask me what has been the most successful marketing we've done, it's been thought leadership, and it's also been convening. Convening groups of people that want to get to know each other who are true peers under our brand auspices has been enormously impactful for our brand.
0: What are the mechanisms you use to do that?
1: So, for instance, here's a great example. We realize in the alternatives world, marketing is new. And we realize in the alternatives world that for the first time, large alternative firms are hiring chief communications officers or chief marketing officers. If you look at the landscape, AQR being an example, they just made their head of marketing a partner, which shows you how seriously they're taking marketing, right? But these firms have only had marketers the last three or four years, if that. Most of them are just hiring them first time. So we made the assumption like, wow, I bet those people would love to get to know each other. Like wouldn't this chief marketing officer for AQR want to know the chief marketing officer for Cerberus and the chief marketing officer at Kcare? We'd throw gatherings for them to get to know each other because we know they want to trade information and become friends and have a peer network. So those sorts of things where you're gifting a peer network and you're gifting value to a community, that's how you get something in return, right? I always say sales is giving to receive. So Those sorts of activities have been very powerful to brand building for us, but we only started to do these things in the last five years. So I even look at our own model and say, boy, we could have accelerated our own success if we marketed ourselves a little more aggressively early.
0: And how about turning that onto your client base, Yeah, where you've been doing this a long time. I imagine not every firm you've worked with has gone on to huge success. So what happened In the one example that sticks in your mind of, man, we should have been able to help and it just wasn't going to work.
1: The reality is what we do, there's a lot of authenticity to it. Meaning if a management team is going to make silly mistakes, no PR can get you out of that. And this kind of gets to the other side of our business, which is the crisis management and the issues management, right? So I always say sometimes that we are not just the communications council, but like the emotional intelligence council. So we had a client who called up on the weekend and said, we're going to make this announcement to all our partners that they're now going to be retitled to managing director. We're like, this is the communications we've written. And I mean, I looked at that and said, do you understand what this is? like psychologically, like when everyone's LinkedIn page goes from partner to MD overnight. And they thought it was no big deal. And I thought this is not just a big deal to your whole world. It's your talent. But reputationally, it will be a big black eye. And if you don't think people are going to talk about this in the press, they're absolutely going to. So sometimes some things that seem common sense to me are not Necessarily. So I think that their mistakes that are made in business turn out to be reputational mistakes, right? So that's where I see firms going wrong mostly is making genuine business mistakes that could have been avoided. And those become big reputational errors. And as you know, once you've let a perception or a reputation calcify, very difficult to change that once it's happened. And what
0: happened in that example? Did they roll it out or did you stop them? No, from we it? Yeah, we stopped them.
1: When I think about My proudest moments, it's when I stopped a client from doing something that would have been materially bad for their business and bad for their reputation.
0: So let's turn to the crisis management side. Something happens, funds having a bad month, whatever it is, and you know the news is going to get out. Mm -hmm. What do you do?
1: Well, of course, we try to mitigate disaster. And we also know if there is a really legitimate bad story or legitimate bad performance there is sort of a myth out there that you know the firm's going to be able to kill a story. You don't kill a real story when it's bad and it's real. But what you can do is add context to it, neutralize it, negotiate with a reporter can I give you context around this? Because you're really too extreme on this. So we spend a lot of our time trying to neutralize or balance bad stories. Of course, we would like to think that we could always kill stories, but the reality is it's really the management around those stories. Negative performance almost always leaks to the press. So it's how do you deal with that? And how do you contextualize that? And how do you put forth the data about the performance over time? right? So that the reporter actually gets the story right and it's not as extreme, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, it does. So the hedge fund industry hasn't had the best PR for the last 10 years, 11 years. How much do you pay attention to the PR of the industry when you're working with your clients that are in the industry?
1: Context and sentiment is everything. So When negative sentiment is high, even if it's not among your target audience, you need to consider everything you do. So we do pay attention to it, of course. And I think we're very careful. It's sort of like you don't want to make an announcement when the news cycle is against you. A good PR firm is paying attention to everything, every data point, every policy move, every piece of press, whether it's in the popular press or it's in the institutional press, So context is everything.
0: Do you try to influence the message for the industry at all?
1: Sure, I think so. I think everyone's a participant in the industry, and some clients take that very seriously, and others really want to stay away from it. But we also do a lot of off-the-record and backgrounding with reporters. A lot of our clients actually invest a great deal of time educating reporters about the industry so that they can get it right. And that is usually repaid in spades. So again, I think when something is extreme or extremely negative, when people are willing to contextualize for the reporters, a lot of times it creates a more realistic, positive outcome. What's the
0: competitive (laughs) environment like for your business?
1: It's very competitive, especially on the mature side. If a large global financial institution is going to hire a firm to manage its reputation, they are going to take that super seriously. And they are probably going to see – upwards of 10 players in the beginning, and it's the usual process. Go from 10 down to four, down to two finalists. But yes, it's a process. I would say on the other side of the fence, it's still a process, but it's not as competitive because those folks make decisions faster, and they talk to their friends, and they just decide if you're good enough for so-and-so, you're good enough for me. And But think about it, though. On the large financial institution side, no offense to them, but they're spending other people's money. And it's a different – there's a CEO and a CMO and a CCO, and they're all – on the other side, it's a founder. And founders are, to some degree, going to go with relationship, gut, and who my friends use. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: what is it that the private equity firms have done right?
1: They're long-term investors, right? And they're long-term operators. So The advantage they have is they take the long view of things anyway, and that's helpful. So I've seen a lot of the larger private equity firms actually do some very pioneering things that have helped them out now. Like if you look at KKR's track record on ESG and corporate social responsibility, it's like 12 years long. They've been looking at how to improve their companies, not just efficiencies, but Climate footprints and all this stuff for years and years and years and years. So, I think they have taken very seriously reputation, public policy, all this stuff. So, I think that they've done some things really well. And I think the hedge funds will too. They're just earlier in that education process of what it means to really build those relationships and have those constituencies and protect your brand. I think it's just in early days. I also think, honestly, hedge funds have shorter-term mentalities, right? They're a trader mentality for the most part. So I think it's not as natural to them, this sort of space. But we see the hedge fund community as, like, talk about the emerging market. They are the tip of the iceberg with the emerging market, and they're taking this incredibly seriously. I mean, we must get five calls a week from hedge funds saying, I got to go from the back foot to the front foot. I got to learn this stuff and take it seriously. And what do I need to do? We don't spend very much time, even in the hedge fund community, educating them as to why they need this anymore. They know they need this. It's just getting it in place and the process that it takes to do it right.
0: Do you think it's too late?
1: No. Why? It's never too late. Well, I'm an optimist. (laughs) I don't think it's too late. And I think that there will be always winners and losers. And I think the hedge fund space has had – its challenges. But I think it will be a sustainable asset class. And I think they will learn these behaviors and they'll be very successful funds.
0: I wanted to touch on another book that you wrote.
1: Okay. I know which book that would be because there's only two. (laughs)
0: Well, well, why don't you go ahead and talk
1: about it? (laughs) Sure. So Army of Entrepreneurs was my first book. And what was so magical about that book is I believe, then again, I'm an optimist, that any human being can be more entrepreneurial at work and that being more entrepreneurial at work creates a better experience for the company, but also individually. So I've seen adults. It's hard to teach adults new tricks, but we did. We taught adults new tricks, and it worked. So when I had my daughter 10 years ago now... I was fascinated by, you know, if you could teach adults to be more entrepreneurial, it's a child. Like, children are so moldable. How do you teach a child to be more entrepreneurial? And how much of it is nature versus nurture? My parents were teachers. They were not in business. And I ended up being an entrepreneur, and my brother – Is an artist and author. So he's actually an entrepreneur too in his own way. So people would always ask my parents, What did you do to create these two entrepreneurial kids? And they wouldn't have an answer. So the second book was really the journey to figure out could you actually create a more entrepreneurial child and how do you do that? So I partnered with a professor at Brown who studies child psychology and brain science. So I brought the entrepreneurial side and he brought the science. And we wrote this book about how to create a more entrepreneurial child, which was really kind of a fun thing to do.
0: And what would you find?
1: Well, I'm very careful not to claim victory because I have – I guess you just <laughs> turned 11 – an 11-year-old, 11 so I can't say I've raised an entrepreneur yet, but what we found was what you'd expect, that you were born on a certain spectrum of entrepreneurial behavior, but that environment can absolutely create – more entrepreneurial behavior, right? So we focused a lot on the book on what are those environmental factors. And for instance, optimism. Optimism is proven to be, that can be trained. Like you could be born on the spectrum of optimist versus pessimist, but your environment can create a more optimistic person. So there are certain traits that can be highly influenced.
0: What are some of the other ones you can train?
1: So optimism was definitely one. Resourcefulness was another. I mean, one thing I'll never, ever forget when my daughter went to preschool, when we had the first meeting with the preschool teachers, they said to the parents, you know, no offense, parents, but we're gonna tell you, stop carrying your kids up the stairs and let them walk. Stop zipping their jackets and let them try it themselves. You realize as parents, we do we wanna do everything for our kids. We don't even let them have the joy of trying. And failing to zip up their jacket or tie their shoes or whatever. We're just doing it all for them. And it was like a magic moment for me where I realized, oh, my gosh, I'm not letting my kid – experiment enough and try and fail enough. So like little things. If you actually start focusing on your parenting behavior that way, you start really changing it because you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not letting her do X, Y, Z. So taking risk, calculated risk is really, really important. And I know we live in a scary world where we want to protect our children, but we're often sucking all of the opportunity to take risk out of it. So it's a balance.
0: Were there anything that you found that you were hoping could be trained, but you learned really was more nature than nurture?
1: Not really. I mean, I have to say, I was pleasantly surprised that, as you would suspect, if you concentrate on steering your children in a certain way, you can actually have influence. There wasn't too much negative news, which is good.
0: So what's next for you?
1: What's next? Well, I always say to people, if I wrote down on a notepad, this is the firm I'd want one day when I was sitting in my crappy office when we had like four employees and it was all looking very dark. This is the firm I wanted. So I'm like, "Oh, what's next?" I think we're in such a magic moment as a firm, and I say that with humility because it took a long hard road to get here. But I think outside of a economic event, you know, the next 5 to 10 years should be very good for our firm. I think, again, the emerging market is raging. I think we have years before it becomes mature. And I think we have a lot to offer our clients in so many ways as they mature themselves. So I think we're just going to keep on doing what we're doing and execute and try to scale the magical culture we've had, which is probably the biggest challenge because the larger you get, the harder it is to scale culture.
0: And so is there another book about the function of what you're doing in the come- (laughs)
1: Well, interestingly enough, Army of Entrepreneurs was published in 2011, and I feel like, oh my God, that's so 2011. The world's changed, right? So I'm talking to Collins about doing an updated book on Army of Entrepreneurs and the New Generations, because the new generations have certainly changed the workplace completely. And when you run a firm like ours, you have... millennial and Gen Z population. So we've learned so much about how to motivate and retain that workforce that it just makes sense to update with all the special things in the first book, but all the new things that are... To come. Gen Z just hit the workforce. So,
0: what have you learned about the millennials? Because I know people often struggle yeah. to manage millennials.
1: So, what's really interesting is I'll talk about millennials, but so Gen Z is the newest, newest, newest workforce. They're like our literally our most junior people. And they were raised predominantly by Gen X. So, apparently, the Gen Zs are going to be very gritty and tough and stick in their jobs because they were told not everyone gets a prize, and you may not always win, and it's going to be a really interesting shift. The millennials, actually, I give them- are
0: <laughs> <or> not that. <laughs> well, they're not
1: that, but I give them a lot of credit. They have changed the game at work, and a lot of things that they wanted out of work and life are right- And I think that they generally are going to have more balance in their lives. I think they're going to not wake up as much as Gen X did, miserable in their 40s and 50s because they didn't pursue what they wanted to pursue. What they have really right is just their focus on meaning and purpose and what matters. And they're brave. They are so brave, meaning if they don't like what you stand for and it doesn't align with their beliefs, they just walk out. And they walk out with no safety net. They are brave we were not that brave. So I give them credit for a lot of things. But they've definitely challenged us too, because millennials, unlike Gen Xers, we would stay at a job for 10 years happily. That's just not the way they're wired. So they've changed a lot of the workforce, but they've changed a lot for the good.
0: I think a lot of people probably be excited to know that Gen Zs are flipping that switch a little bit. It's
1: interesting. So I saw a presentation on Gen Z, and the thing that really resonated with me was like, Millennials grew up on Harry Potter. Gen Z grew up on the Hunger Games. Right? And they believe not only does only one person win, you might die in the process. So I thought that was really a big shift from whimsical to dystopian almost.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to turn to some closing questions. Before we do, if you had just one nugget of wisdom mm-hmm. that you wanted to share with someone who's coming into the office, yeah. has a fund, wants to grow, wants to stabilize their client base, what would it be?
1: Figure out your differentiated narrative. The thing that when you say it about your firm, people get excited or want to write something down. I think differentiation is the name of the game. I thought you were going to ask me overall in life, and I was going to say the two most important words I ever learned were just ask. And my original partner in business taught me the just ask. And one of the really cool things about not growing up in another environment with a lot of rules is like that was the only rule I ever knew. So I've gone through my entire career saying, what's the downside? I'm just going to ask. And when you ask and you ask the right way at the right time, I find about 70% of the time you get something. And it's amazing how few people actually ask.
0: Asking for something or asking a question of something you don't know?
1: Asking for something that you want. So one of my best examples – I went to the CEO roundtable discussion, and I had this wonderful chat with this CEO of a major global engineering and architecture firm. And in my brain, I was saying, wow, I'd love to work with this company. I'd love to get a piece of business from this company. But, you know, you don't do that. So we were leaving and trading cards and saying, you know, it was so nice to meet you. And we walk out. We're on the street corner. We're just about to leave each other. And my Just Ask meter went off, and I said to him, you know – I don't want to be grabby, but if you ever need a PR firm, I hope you'll call me. And he goes, oh, my God, I'm so glad you said that. We're actually looking for a PR firm. He had chatted with me for 30 minutes. I figured what I was saying resonated with him. He knew what I was doing. But if I didn't ask on the street corner, he became a client for eight years. If I didn't ask on the street corner, I wouldn't have gotten. I have another story, one of my favorite, with a really, really, really big, well, $25 billion hedge fund, been a client for 10 years. We gave the first pitch. They fell in love with us. They said, "All right, you're gonna get it. All you have to do is meet the founder." So we thought we're like shoo-in. We should have done more homework. We met the founder, very intimidating man, and it wasn't a good meeting. It was terrible, in fact. And I'm like, "Oh crap, we just <laughs> blew it." So we walk out, and you know, the guy who liked us the first time calls me like, "Oh Jen, I'm sorry, that wasn't so great." I'm like, "I know, I know, I know, I know. I was so embarrassed." So we hang up the phone, and then I called him back. And I'm like, do you think you could get us another meeting with him? (laughs) And the guy's like, I don't think so. And then he called me back. He's like, I got you another meeting with him. They almost respected the fact that I was like gritty. Like I'm like, ask for another meeting. We had a great second meeting. We got the client 10 years later. So I just think the just ask thing is very powerful.
0: So you prefaced it with two things. You said first... Just ask, but at the right time and in the right way. What's the right time?
1: Well, you have to have a lot of emotional intelligence around everything you do in life. Well, the right time could be anything. Like you have to get the other person's vibe. Are they having a bad day that day? Are they distracted? Are they wet from walking out in the rain? Like everything you do in Just Ask has to be orchestrated around right place, right time. Or like yesterday, one of my clients was having a crisis, and in my brain, he hasn't signed his contract yet, and I really want it. Am I going to ask him for the contract when he's right in the middle of a do-or-die moment? No, I'm not. So I think it's like anything else. It's common sense.
0: And what's the right way?
1: I always say the right way is with humanity, meaning I think the reason in the story about the $25 billion hedge fund they gave me a second chance is – It kind of reminded them of them. There was humanity in it. I've said, I really like you guys. I know we screwed it up and it would mean the world to me if you gave us another chance. You don't have to do it. I get it. I think there was humanity in the moment. I think they're like, you know what? We like this chick. She's got grit, you know? (laughs) And I do think on the private side especially – No matter how large the firms get, you're dealing with people who own the place. It is their money, their firm, their business. And it becomes very personal. Luckily, I didn't grow up in someone else's corporate environment where I believed you couldn't just be a human. That's one of my other goals in life. It's like, just do it the way you think you should do it as a human being. And that's always been my guidance.
0: Are there any other of these sort of guiding principles, either that you use here or in your life?
1: Yeah, I'm sure I have a whole book from. I'm going to have to do book number three. (laughs) But yeah, I think there's a lot of them. This sounds like a negative one, but another one I sort of say is like, let your enemy be your energy. There's a lot of Me Too going on and all this sort of stuff. And when I have felt left out or insulted or biased or whatever, I've always turned it into a point of energy. Like, I'll show that person. I'll do that. I'm going to do that. And I think that's the entrepreneurial spirit within me. But a little bit of competitiveness or controversy sometimes can fuel a whole lot of good energy too. So I probably could write down like 25 of these little How about about one more? (laughs) Um, Another big one for me is uh, solve, don't dwell. Put all your energy into solving problems and don't dwell for a second when things go wrong. Because, again, people put too much energy on the dwell and not enough on the solve. But I read this great book by Jim Collins once, and he talks about something called luck moments. And he says, every human being has pretty much the same portfolio of luck moments, good ones and bad ones. And the people who shoot the moon are the people who recognize when it's a luck moment, a good luck moment, and they focus and they max it out. They don't get distracted. They're like, this is the moment. And they're also the same people that take a bad luck moment and turn it into a good luck moment. And I would say the story about the hedge fund, bad luck moment into good luck moment. I mean, that story has been so important to me. I tell that story to everyone here because I'm like, this is what can happen when you just are genuine and human, right? So bad luck moments into good luck moments is really, I think, very powerful. And that's that solve, don't dwell thing. All right.
0: We got to keep going. Think of another one.
1: Another one. Oh. Whatever I have so many mantras. Don't be a black and white thinker. I don't think there's there's never one way to solve a problem. There's like 150. And I think people tend to be incredibly black and white, and they don't play the gray enough.
0: From my experience, there are a lot of people in the investment world Mm -hmm. that succeed in part because they're black and white thinkers. How do you work with that type of client?
1: Well, there's a lot of those people, right? The nice thing is, in my world, in the world of reputation and communication, there's almost never one answer. So I think it's getting your client to respect this world is different than your world. Because you're right, math, there's one problem. There's one answer. And I think people who are in this industry, they grow up on math. I love this story. So when I went to Columbia Business School, the first semester was statistics, accounting, finance, and human behavior. Of course, I'm freaking out about the first three. all my colleagues were freaking out about the human behavior class. I was like, what is up? I'm like, all right, my brain is wired completely differently. And it's not like they thought it was a stupid class. They were literally like afraid of it. (laughs) So I'm like, all right, wiring is different. So I think it's just getting your client to appreciate that they're in their business for a reason and I'm in mine for a reason. And the way they see the world isn't always the way you need to see the world to be successful on my side of the fence.
0: All right, John, let's turn to some closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family?
1: Well, there's not much time left, but no, my favorite hobby, if I could do it more, would be scuba diving.
0: Nice. So you do some? I do. Yeah. yeah.
1: I dive a couple times a year.
0: What's your biggest pet peeve?
1: My biggest pet peeve is, well, maybe two things. Even for myself and it happens. It happened today with you. I hate being late and I don't <laughs> like people who are late. I guess that's a pet peeve. I think another pet peeve is people who say that can't happen. I don't like that. I've always feel like maybe that can't happen that way, but what could we do instead? So I'm a getting to yes gal. So that's a pet peeve too, is and I guess a third pet peeve, I'm first generation American and I guess it was drilled into my head how much I should appreciate the opportunity that we have here, even with all the U.S.'s problems. So I think another pet peeve is people who don't appreciate what they were naturally afforded by being born in this country.
0: What reading do you almost never miss?
1: In my profession, you have to read voraciously. So I think my never misses list is the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, Vanity Fair, and The Atlantic. That gives <laughs> nice me mix. a really good mix. Yeah, no, I'll
0: probably take care of it. Great. Yes. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you?
1: My parents actually ended up teaching me a lot without me realizing it, but upon later reflection. So my dad was a big naturalist, so he taught me to appreciate nature. He was also really into poetry. And I find that all the poems he drilled into my head have actually... Been oddly like these guiding lights.
0: Do you have a favorite?
1: I guess I have two. Well, I have a lot, but a couple that one is like sort of positive, and one is sort of depressing. But I think the Robert Frost "Road Less Traveled," you know, and I feel like that's my business, right? I chose to go in the direction that no one else did, and that afforded me a lot. So I I use that Frost poem a lot in my presentations. There's also this odd poem by Ella Wheeler Wilcox called Solitude. It's very depressing, but it has some real truths. And it it sort of starts – I won't be able to recite the whole thing, but I can recite the first few lines. It was, uh, laugh and the world laughs with you, weep and you weep alone. And it's really a poem that reminds you that the world wants to hang with an optimist, a bright light, someone with passion, someone with energy – And that as much as, of course, we should all support each other on our problems, no one wants to really hang with somebody who is always dour. And I would say I subscribe to that. How about your mom? So my parents spoke six languages each. When they didn't want us to understand what they're talking about, they just chose three or four languages to speak. So I think they taught me the importance of being open-minded, being worldly, respecting other cultures. And I think I look back on my parents and uh, the one thing I think about all the time because we live in a snarky world. I don't think my parents said one negative thing about anyone behind their back the entire time I was growing up. And I really look at that as like a wow. I don't think I know anybody like that, including myself. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. All right, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life?
1: To be honest with you, I think I got very lucky early in life. Like I said, it looked like a bad luck moment that I couldn't get the job of my dreams, that big firms weren't hiring in New York City, that I ended up working for this random guy in a crappy office, whatever. But like, look what a luck moment it actually ended up being. So I would say I had the privilege of learning a lot of things early that other people learn later because I didn't have a lot of rules around me. When you have a lot of rules around you, you actually start thinking those things are right. And I think that I learned early how to do things my way, but no, I know how lucky I've been.
0: Are there life lessons you try to teach your younger people early in their careers?
1: Oh, definitely. Some of them I mentioned, the solve, don't dwell, the don't be a black and white thinker. Just ask, behave with humanity, all of those things for sure. And I definitely drill it into my daughter.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great, Jen. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Ted.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show. And I thank you for it. Have a good one